I'm definitely not a not a person who worries that AI will come to life and 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 revolt or rebel against humans. I think if we have to worry about anything, is is really who is behind the AI, uh, who controls AI, and uh, that's a that's a much more real concern. But uh, AI itself is going to be an amazing tool, and and it's going to outpace our ability to enhance people biologically. In other words, AI's abilities are going to are going to exponentially increase. Uh, at an amazing rate. And for humans, you know, we, we'll work really hard to give a human being 20%, 30%, 50% better memory, which is a, you know, tremendous thing to do. But it just will pale in comparison to what AI will be doing in parallel when it comes to, you know, cognitive functions. Today's episode is brought to you in part by the Georgia Impact Podcast, bringing you a first-hand look at the big opportunities and issues facing today's software entrepreneurs. On the show, they interview CEOs and founders of software companies and other thought leaders in the space, so you can hear firsthand how they're working to solve business problems with cutting-edge tech, just like we do here on The Disruptors. The show helps CEOs, founders, and product leaders, really anyone who's interested in the latest developments in software startup scene, understand a wide range of topics. Things like machine learning and AI, conversational interfaces, privacy, ethics, and trust, big problems in the AI space, blockchain, quantum computing, and other emerging technologies. You can find and subscribe to the Georgia Impact Podcast wherever you find your podcasts. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the cash app and coffee. Seriously. Disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix and save money on coffee. And now let's get on with the program. Welcome to the disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Do you meditate? Do you work out? Do you drink coffee? Do you eat healthy? We all have our little things that we do to try to feel and perform at our best. And I think we've all learned there are significant ways to optimize ourselves, so to speak, biohacking. And today we're talking biohacking, but from the bioelectric scale. We've got Izzy Goldfosser on the program. He's the founder of Think, a startup that's creating breakthrough bioelectronic therapies to advance frontier and create a consumer category impacting billions, i.e. helping people alter their states, whether they want to be more alert, they want to get ready for sleep, they want to be more productive. This is incredible technology, what they're working with, and the research behind it is quite impressive. Before this, Izzy was the CEO and founding team member of Simex technology. Sorry, it's a terribly hard one to pronounce, but he ended up taking it public and being incredibly successful with the company. He's listed as an inventor and on more than 40 patents worldwide, serves on the board of directors for the Scripps Research Institute and the California Institute of Biomedical Research. And he was an entrepreneur at residence at Coastal Ventures in 2010. Izzy's a serial entrepreneur with a lot to add to the conversation, which we are got to do right now. In today's episode, we discuss many things, including the future of self-enhancement and why much of it will be mechatronic, why humanity will never be able to keep up with AI, why Izzy's not too worried about automation and the loss of jobs, 
why AI is actually a really, really good thing for the human race, possible alternatives to the pharmaceutical industry, why AI will probably be a distributed technology that makes it safer and not more dangerous, and how we can improve healthcare and bring down costs, something we've talked about a ton and a major, major hassle. I know you guys are going to enjoy this one with Izzy. Before we get into it, here's the part of the program where I ask you guys to consider supporting the disruptors. If you haven't already, if you support us and the work that we're doing, if you like the podcast and the content that we're putting out, consider supporting us. Consider supporting independent media at the level of $1, $5, Anything per month is something that helps us make this more sustainable. You can find out more at disruptors.fm slash Patreon. And if you donate at a level of $5 or more per month, which is actually tax deductible because we're sponsored by a U.S. charity, that means you unlock bonus episodes and content. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And if you support us at a level of $5 or more per month, you'll unlock some bonus content, some ad-free episodes, and much, much more. But now without further ado, I give you Izzy Goldwasser, whose audio isn't entirely great throughout some parts of the episode. We had a little bit of issues with the mic and technology, but you know what? While the audio has a couple of issues, the content's incredible. So I think it's time that we jump in. Let's do it. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So Izzy, I wanted to say thanks for coming to the program, and you've got a you've got a really interesting background. So can you give me a quick 30-second overview before we dive into it? Sure. I'm a, I'm a chemical engineer by training and really entrepreneur. Worked, worked in building a company in the material science space where we used the robotics to discover new materials. So we took the Silicon Valley approach to uh, discovery. We, we, in parallel, miniaturized, parallelized, automated experimentation so we could have robots uh, do what chemists uh, conceived and make process and test hundreds of thousands of materials at once. So we call that high throughput research. And, and I spent 17 years of my life building a company that became a public company named Simex. Doing that. And after that began what is currently my, my journey today with Think. Uh, and that is in, in looking at uh, neurotechnologies to really give us all access to, you know, built in biology or abilities we have and using the neurotech to turn things on or, or off. Which is both fascinating fields. I think. I think the coming century is going to be defined by a bit of both new materials because we need to solve old problems better and transformations in ourselves, both biologically and then also what you're doing in terms of how can we enhance ourselves on a on a mechanical or a electric perspective, so to speak. What uh, what got you into this? What was the what was the genesis of neuroscience as an interest? Yeah, for me, I, I think it was really very simple. I just felt there, was, there had to be better ways to access our own abilities uh, without having to take pharmaceuticals or, or drinks uh, to try to get into certain states or modes. And it just seemed that uh, there must be a way to tap into our nervous system, our, our brain and, and our neurons to, to really on demand, you know, call up our, our best and, and that's really it. It was really that very simple idea that led to the creation of Think and partnering with an amazing team to, to discover ways to do that. And it's kind of the analogy of the mom who sees her kid getting crushed by a car and can lift the car, despite the fact that she's the scrawny little, scrawny little lady. There's things inside people they don't realize they have. Yeah. In fact, well, we know, we know actually we have them. And we, we know what, what it feels like to be really driven, really energized. We know what it feels like to be completely calm and focused. We know what it feels like to when your memory and your, your you know you're just sharp and able to 
do your best. And I think all those moments are there for all of us. They're just not common, at least for most people. Uh, people really struggle to find those, you know, to get in the zone really uh, in those different states. What do you think about the whole transhumanism movement? Well, I, I, I certainly was enamored by it too when I, you know, years ago when I started to read about it and thought about it in the context of what we do at Think, which is tapping into the nervous system. We, we obviously looked at that. I think enhancing human cognition and really the, the radical visions for it uh, are fascinating. You know, alongside that, we've seen the rise of AI also in the last five to seven years in, in particular. And so I think looking at the pace of that and looking at transhumanism and and looking at brain hacking technologies and methods that we use and others use, I, I've gotten, I guess, a, a, an overall picture of you of what, of what I think is happening. And where do you think we're headed with that? Are you in the, we're all going to become singularity mindset? Are you worried about AI? What are you, what are you worried about? And where do you think we're headed in some of those realms? Boy, yeah, big topic. I, I'm definitely not a, not a person who worries that AI will come to life and, and, and revolt or rebel against humans. I think if we have to worry about anything is, is really who is behind the AI, uh, who controls AI. And uh, that's, a, that's a much more real concern. But uh, AI itself is going to be an amazing tool. And, and it's going to outpace our ability to enhance people biologically. In other words, AI's abilities are going to, are going to exponentially increase uh, at an amazing rate. And for humans, you know, we'll work really hard to give a human being 20%, 30%, 50% better memory, which is a, you know, tremendous thing to do. But it just will pale in comparison to what AI will be doing in parallel when it comes to, you know, cognitive functions. It makes me think of, we have a little kid now, a little son, and it makes me think of when he was younger. Thank God he wasn't mobile because the mind wasn't there to be able to handle the damage that the body could do if the body was bigger. Do you worry about that with humanity where we're moving into this era where our bodies will be too big for our brains, so to speak? We won't be able to keep up with what we can do? You know, um, again, I'm not, maybe I'm just not neurotic about it. I, I do think that the real world limitations of, of, you know, actually doing things and propagating them across millions and, and billions of people is, you know, puts in place natural checks and balances with everyone looking and everyone under, you know, evaluating, critiquing and, 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 you know, concerned. I just, I just don't see a runaway capability. I think the opposite. I think it's going to be challenging to find those killer apps that we all want to, you know, that they're going to be there, of course, for AI. I think it will be challenging to, to find them and to, to propagate this so that we're all using AI properly. So, I just think there's a lot of heavy lifting to take any technology, uh, even when it's obvious that we should, you know, should be developed. It, it's it's such a big boulder to carry to, to take it over the mountain and really make it available for the masses. So I'm I'm all for the investment AI, the the companies behind it, the the you know the giant tsunami of effort, you know, of activity that's going on is all really good. It doesn't mean that people are going to, you know, there'll be people abusing it. There'll be companies that that don't deserve to be trusted. There'll be a lot of things that happen. But in general, this is a really good thing for, for the human race. It is. And I find it interesting. You say AI as if it's a noun, like it's a single thing. But I think about you and I, and we, we both have different forms of intelligence. Do you think we'll have lots of artificial intelligences in the future? Do you think it'll be something that's more all-encompassing or will there be personalities and flavors? Oh, absolutely. I think you're right. 
going to be very, you know, it's going to be a, a very diverse set of capabilities, some very narrow, uh, most very narrow, uh, to do specific things. And, and I, I do also believe in, in, uh, you know, in, is it Yuval Harari's book? Um, I forget the title, but I think it's 21st, 21st, 21 lessons for the 21st century. But in general, I think one of them is right, is that, you know, the, the future for the next few decades, at least, is going to be about the centaur teams. It's a combination of humans and AI together. And it's not a, it's not a partnership that's, that's going to be stable because the AI is going to get better and better, really diminishing the human contribution over time. But it, but it is going to be incredibly powerful across all the different industries, verticals, and applications. Uh, so I, I just believe the combination is going to be great. That's going to be a focus, and people should be looking to that to really advance you know, AI. And there'll be, like you said, a whole diverse set of capabilities to do that. Worried about jobs at all? Uh, sure. I, I do think there'll be large sectors where jobs will be lost. I, I think many of those jobs are not jobs that people aspire to have their whole life. They're not they're not the end goal for most people. They're, they're jobs that, you know, if we could create other jobs and better jobs, that people would not rather do that. Uh, so if we take cashiers or if we even take drivers, uh, there are many people who love those jobs. But in general, people don't, don't grow up to try to be a driver or a cashier for their careers. And so I, I don't think there's anything wrong with getting rid of those type of jobs, you know, over time. And a big focus of what you're working on now is self-enhancement, the, the wearable space. What what do you see happening there on some of the cutting edges? We well we we got a little background. We we launched the first it's called Mood Altering Wearable. It's a it was a, called Think Edition One. It was launched in 2015, and, and what it was is a wearable device you would you would place on your forehead on the right side, and you would control it with an app on your phone, and you would choose a program either to energize you or calm you down. And the way that it, we did a, a tremendous amount of science to and published on this to to develop the technology. But what we are doing is really stimulating our cranial nerves that are on the neck and head, which are key nerves that connect to the brain. And we're just trying to trigger, uh, influence your autonomic nervous system. So your, your rest and digest mode versus your fight or uh, flight response. We're just trying to, to really move you towards one or the other very slightly. And that's what gives you this, you know, relaxation versus energizing, uh, feeling. And all it really is, it's a way to trigger your own body's response which is why it's so healthy and natural. So you do something at a nerve and it triggers this whole body response, which is, you know, which is to get you into the mode that you want to be in. And that's, we did that with this wearable and it's, it was really uh, ahead of its time for sure. Uh, but a huge amount of effort with a tremendous team to get this to, to the market. We're really proud of it. But that entire experience really, really shaped our thinking as we saw it in the market and, and really taught us a lot about, you know, ways to bring not only wearables, but also any technology like this to market and what, what you really need to focus on. And what is that? Well, I think it all, I mean, it's, it really comes down to keep it simple, stupid. I mean, I, I can't say it any <laughs> more simply. But uh, we, we right now, for example, uh, we took our wearable technology and pulled it from the consumer market and pivoted it into healthcare and are developing it for as a therapy. But as far as the consumer market, we went back and, and then on the side, we, we developed a really important technology that we're close to launching, which is a, a patch uh, versus a wearable. So a smart patch. Uh, and, and the reason it's fascinating and the reason it's a big lesson is because a wearable or any medical device is something that you 
you want to, you know, you, you want to give your, your customer, the end user, a lot of control. So they, they can pick the program they're going to use. They can pick the intensity and control it while they're using it. And that has been the vision forever. But a patch is the exact opposite where you preset everything, remove all the buttons. The user doesn't have to learn anything or do anything other than put it on. And then the patch does its, you know, fulfills its purpose, which is to energize you or relax you or help you sleep. In the case of our patch, our first patch, uh, it's an energy patch. So we're about to soft launch this awesome product called the energy patch that you just put on behind your ear for five minutes. And when you're done with it, you can use it a few times. Then when you're done with it, you just uh, throw it away. And it's really cool. We actually came up with a different brand for it. If people are curious, it's not available, but we're running a beta test right now. And uh, if people are curious, they can go to useyourhead.com. So just like it sounds, useyourhead.com, and you'll see uh, this really cool energy patch concept. So basically, you're trying to create uh, technical solutions to traditionally biological problems. I'm going to pop some caffeine because I'm exhausted, or the coder over there is going to pop in modafinil so you can concentrate for hours. You're trying to find a more natural solution that's also not natural. Yeah, it is. It is more natural. And of course, yeah, you're, you're doing something external. So it's not purely natural, but it is, it is more natural to turn your own body's abilities on, you know, with, with, you know, via your nerves. That's a more natural approach. Ultimately, I mean, I would love it if everyone would just be, you know, we would all be Buddhist monks in the sense that we could control our states at will and via meditation, um, put ourselves in the state we want to be in. That is just not practical for people. And so, what we're doing with this technology and these patches is really giving people a way just to, to do that directly. Speaking of the Buddhist monk thing, I want to do a call out for an app I just found. We Croak. It's an app that tells you five times a day you're going to die. And the science behind it is fascinating in terms of the happiness. And I, I've been using it for a couple of days now and I really like it. So if you guys are having trouble with this and can't go sit in a cave, that could be something helpful as well. But how do you, how do you look at that role of technology when people are becoming both more dependent and addicted to technology, but there are also those beneficial applications. How do, we, how do we balance that? Because most of the people that need the balance have no ability to do so. Yeah, no, I think it's a concern for everyone is, is how addictive our phones are and the content on them and the, the different things we can do on them that we could, all of us do it. I mean, I think we, we, we can easily spend eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours a day on them uh, if we want to. So uh, that that part of it, and in general, technology has always been this way. Is it, it, it does take time to learn how to use something brand new that's important, and it, and it just it does tend to take a few decades at least for people to really learn how to do it. And and I, I, I am confident we'll we'll learn how to do that too, even with you know with our phones. Uh, but it takes hard lessons, you know, to to adjust. Um, and technology is no difference. So we, we'll just learn our lessons and, and adjust accordingly. Uh, but I, I don't see technology inherently as, you know, uh, being good or inherently as being evil. It, it's developed to be good for the most part by people and, and, and people behind us, really in the Silicon Valley and, you know, startups. There's, my company is one of those, you know, companies that we, we obviously believe in technology. We believe in, the, in improving the world through technology as corny as that, as that sounds. And, but we all fundamentally believe that and we do that. But it is still a tool and it depends who's driving it. For what application and who's who's implementing it uh, has a huge impact on whether it is good or not. And so, yeah, I, I guess I, I I'm all for technology because I believe there are many many more positive forces behind it than negative ones. I would agree. It's a double-edged sword, as is everything. 
What technologies worry you the most and why? Uh, good question. I would say technologies that, that allow you to assess and control that large numbers of people, like their, their decisions or their, their states to make decisions or their biases. Uh, anything that centralizes them to a very small group of people, I would say that's, that's a, that would worry me. So like social media, news, pretty much what people spend the majority of their days on? Um, I would say it's a little more advanced, but uh, I think it's more than what we have today. I think it's even more insightful than what we have the ability to do today, coupled with an ability to, again, in a more precise way, make people or, or bias people towards action in their lives. I think we're getting there, uh, but I don't think we're quite there yet on those on those capabilities. And it's one thing to have, you know, a company in the United States that's publicly traded have, you know, that that type of uh, access. It's quite another to have a a regime, you know, in another country, you know, do this as a as a centralized pi- pop, you know policy under a different political structure. That's a completely different situation. So. So again, it's really who's behind, you know, who's behind the, the technology. Is it really that different, though? I mean, if the federal government comes to Facebook and says, "Give us all of your information, or we're arresting you, Mark Zuckerberg," that it kind of is the same result, regardless of the means that got there. I don't know. I guess I don't agree. I I think getting information transferred is not the same thing. I think if you really want to do this, you've got to be in command central. It's a dynamic uh, capability. It needs to be done in real time. And it needs to be controlled and managed by whoever's, you know, in the government who wants to do this, let's say this evil, evil group or, or aggressive group. So I just don't, I don't think getting information transferred is uh, enough. I think you have to be behind the, the driver's seat. What sci-fi movie do you think we're most headed towards or book? Oh, that's, that's a good question. You know, I, I, I can't say I'm a, again, I'm not a pessimist and all these, uh, almost all science fiction books that tend to be, the really good ones that predicted a lot of technologies tend to be really, um, you know, all about a, a government controlling all, all, all people uh, in their lives in different ways. And so I just don't believe in that. So I, I guess I'm, I'm uh, I, I guess if anything, I'd say we're more like headed towards this thing like uh, Wally. <laughs> we are. The Amazon is that company, big and large, <laughs> right? It's, uh, I would say that probably has resonates more with me than anything. Uh, I think people more and more make the trade off about being, you know, having instant pleasure when it comes to food and uh, comfort and material goods and all these things having being instant and available all the time. And, and so I think that I do believe that that, that is a trade off we all, you know, many people are making consciously, to be honest, because they just, they just enjoy their life more like that way, even though it has long term health issues and long term. You know, you lose control over your information and other things that have long-term impact. But I, I just think people honestly enjoy it more, so they do it. And like a third of the U.S. is obese. At, at, what, at what point do we need to just regulate some of these things and say, okay, you obviously can't decide for yourself? Yeah, I, I do think that the fundamental disconnect where, where health choices have no financial consequences for people over time, that that, that has to change. You know, people do respond to financial choices. But in the in the future, would they? It's 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 so extended that it's, it's the same deal of well, if I have this hamburger today, I uh, I won't see it there for another couple of weeks. Yeah, I, it's not an easy thing. It's but but this is not an isolation. You're right about when it's your life and there's nothing else to consider. Let's say you're young and you just do what you wish. 
But the truth is we all live in, in most of us live in communities where we see your know, friends, family, and you can see what happens to people and what happens because of their choices. And if, and if there are penalties to be paid and, and hardships to be, you know, to, to be seen and felt more. I, mean, I think, I don't know, the more real it is to people, the more they'll plan. I, I do find it fascinating, even with our, our wearables and our energy patches when we go, you know, try them out with people. And there has been really a change. I mean, I think a lot of young people are so much more aware of their health, so much more aware of, of what they put in their bodies and what they want to do and of, of how they see technology. Even now, the news, they're much more aware of, of the news as well and what they, you know, to be more alert about what they're, what they're reading. And so I think people are just, you know, they're smarter. The younger generation is, has, is better equipped, has more information, has more access to obviously at will anything that they need to learn. So I just think I'm, I'm more optimistic. I, I see it. I, I do think people can change and make choices. I like it. Speaking of optimism, which technology outside of what we've talked about so far has you most excited and why? Or which couple? Um, well, in the short term, being the next you know five years, I, I do get excited by some of the AI applications, especially like in the, in, the, in the justice system. I think there could be a huge amount of benefit. In general, I would say, you know, I would rather have AI play a bigger role in government uh, in decisions and than, than people. I think we'd, we'd get a, a far better result because uh, it's get worse. Yeah, you have so much bias, and by being a politician, you're, you're really difficult to serve your your community properly and make the right decisions uh, and keep your job. And so, I, I think people, the party is the way politics is. I just think an AI program has such a better shot of uh, of getting some things right. In the criminal system as well, in terms of really just you know creating parity, creating real information people the judges can act on and, and do a better job. I think all of it is really transforming for many, many millions of people if it could be done. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the, the, the area I'm in. Um, I do think that whether it's our company or and others, you know, will come along to doing it, this ability to you know use your, your nervous system using technologies to really put yourself into different states, enhance your memory, enhance your your energy you know, trigger your ability to calm down, better sleep. These are all the things that really make a difference, to be honest. You know, we, we started out with cognitive focus, trying to look at memory, trying to look at learning, which is a great area. But we found that if we really want to impact people, it doesn't transform someone to have a 20% greater working memory. I mean, it could be really useful, and I'd, I'd love to do that too. I'd love to have that. But But the truth is, I'd rather be energized and driven and motivated when I need to be. And I'd rather be able to sleep well when I want to. And I'd rather uh, be able to calm down when things are really tense and we happens. And, and, you know, just I just need to collect myself. I want to be able to relax. Those things are more important to my well-being over time, to making the right decisions, to having the right, you know, the relationships I want, to focusing on the things I want and not do the things that I know will take me off track for my life. But it's really emotional. There's an emotional component you cannot ignore. It's not just cognition. And that emotional component drives and rules us, most of us, you know, our daily lives. Oh, much more than the intellectual. What, um, oh, I had a really good question and it just slipped out. Oh, no. Um, what was I going to say? So, in terms of that, in terms of the, okay, that's what it was. Talk to me about the tech. Talk to me about how this actually works and the mechanism of action behind some of these enhancements and some of the stuff you guys are working on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the things that's challenging about working in neuroscience and neurotech 
is that even with the most advanced neuroanatomy and neuroscience techniques and, and knowledge, generally speaking, there's no way to, um, there's no technique right now where you could look at your nervous system or your brain activity in real time and, and understand when you make a change, how it changes that nervous activity. You could, of course, open someone up and put electrodes inside them and measure like the activity of a neuron or a nerve. You could put someone in an MRI and, and get some sense of activity of regions. But there's no real-time feedback about what when you do A, what happens to B. And, and, you know, and A and B are not just single neurons, but they're pathways and, and networks uh, that, that matter and connect together. Very hard to do. There's some amazing tools to do it in animals, though. But there's really nothing in humans yet, at least that I'm aware of. I'm not saying I'm, I know everything, so I'm sure there's some cool new technologies I'm not aware of, but I, I haven't seen them yet in, in practical use. The reason that's important is because what that does is it turns this into a fundamentally empirical activity where you could use all the neuroscience, all the knowledge to this is about 20% of, you know, is, is that. And 80% is you've got to do the experiments and look and see what happens when you do stimulate a particular area, a certain way with a particular waveform, what happens to this network or pathway or, or a person? How do they respond? And so that really is, is how we, uh, to answer your question of what we do, what we have done to get to our technology is we have to probably run around more over 4,000 people over six years uh, through about a thousand different, well, that's not true, not, probably a few hundred different programs that we, uh, you know, from a group of a few thousand programs that we whittled down to a few hundred, those few hundred would go through testing in people. And, and through that testing where, where we use sham or placebo stimulations, we can see, you know, signals, we can see what's real and what's not real when it pertains to creating an energetic, you know, effect versus a relaxation effect versus a memory effect. And that whole process is what we've done in our company. And it's what led us to the, the stimulation programs we use today. And so it's a really highly empirical process where you use the best science possible, but in the end, you've just got to try it and do it and do it and do it until you and make it better and better and better over time. What do you think about the biological enhancements that a lot of people are working on these days in terms of prospects, thoughts on ethics, direction, et cetera? Well, can I ask you what you mean by biological enhancements in particular? So primarily, primarily ones that are genome edits. So people that are looking at CRISPR, et cetera, people that are working with in vitro babies, not so much. Obviously, there's huge biological impacts for just changing your diet, exercising, et cetera. But the, the more cutting edge stuff of self-enhancement. Yes, yes. Well, that I, I do think um, the challenge, the biggest challenge there is, how, I, I mean, talk about empirical. I mean, we, we, <laughs> we, we basically, in order to master that type of technology, you would have to run a lot of experiments and make a lot of mistakes. And that's what's unethical because those, those experiments basically are running on people. And I don't see a way to replace that. I, I don't see how, I mean, you can learn a lot by doing it in a mouse model or, or other animal models uh, and mastering that over time. But, and that's important and that will be necessary to give you the best shot of doing it well in a person. But unless you're dealing with some type of gene edit that is life-saving, I don't know how you take the risk that you can you could basically ruin someone's life to give them a bet to get to enhance them in some particular way. So I I don't know how uh, I haven't thought through enough about it honestly, Matt. But I will tell you that I think that's probably 
that's where the ethics really come to play. I, I, I think we need a better way to do this, to be able to experiment, because there's no way to avoid experimentation. We just don't have, and we will not have, you know, the greatest AI. It's not about AI. It's, it's you know, the ability to, to predict the impact of a gene edit in a human being over the course of years is really, uh, I think, challenging. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry is a toss-up. They create a drug and then realize, oh, this is this actually is Viagra. We didn't realize that. We were trying to make something else entirely. And they just see where the where the positive symptoms are. It, it makes you think that to do something similar in genetic engineering, you're going to have to have a lot of tests and have a lot of buried bodies to make it successful. Yeah. And to be fair, pharmaceuticals, that did happen with Viagra. And that does happen a lot. You know, the drugs that are approved for one thing or being developed for one indication, there's a surprise and people find that they're useful for something else. For the most part, drugs are developed for a very specific target and a huge amount of work. When you hear this number of a billion dollars to develop a drug, it's because they, yeah, they, they, they start out with millions of candidates that get screened in vitro and then they get, uh, you know, the, the best performing binders are optimized with chemistry and it goes into more advanced models, cellular models maybe, then animal models, and then finally into a person. And that entire chain is, you know, incredibly rigorous work, very targeted to cure a particular cancer, a particular type of condition, diabetes or a central nervous disorder or something, you know, it's very targeted. But the issue is always really the same is that in a person, when you first put it in people, you are running an experiment, a very restricted, expensive, time-consuming experiment that, that is on a person, to a group of people to see what happens if you're right about everything you did ahead of time. And that is what makes pharmaceutical research so risky that we don't, we still don't do, you know, we don't, we don't succeed enough um, in people given the amount of work we do ahead of time. And that is a fundamental issue with, with pharma research, which is why, again, when you ask about gene editing, this is the fundamental problem with gene editing as well. It's, you know, we, we just don't have, with as much knowledge as we have about our bodies, it is not yet possible to predict the impact of changing protein levels you know, and introducing a new, a new foreign agent in the body or doing something that's specific even, that you think it's so specific and still there, there are other ramifications because there's so many interdependencies in the, in the human body. So um, I think all of that will be overcome, but it shouldn't be overcome at the risk of, you know, at, at the expense of people's lives, of many people's lives. But it probably will be. And primarily authoritarian regimes, I got to imagine that would be the best place to to try this, China specifically, like World War II, Russia sent soldiers to the front lines without guns. Grab one from your fallen comrades. It, is that going to be a situation where Western democracies can't keep up because they have a stronger guideline of ethics? I, well, I think the, the countries without ethics would only pursue these type of solutions aggressively if, if it gives them some type of uh, short-term, like, dramatic advantage. So if the prize is worth it politically, or worth the the you know the effort, they'll do it. I, I don't know. So far, I haven't seen. Or I don't think we've seen anything like that. So extending life is not like is not political. It's not something that a political regime, a communist regime, or a, a dictatorial regime would would find as you know something they have to have for their regime no matter what. But uh, yeah, I, I guess I don't see that. This is what I mean. I mean, I think that the, the, the check and balance here is that you need to have an application, a set of applications that are worth, you know, that type of, uh, that type of dramatic, uh, effort in by a dictatorial regime. And I don't know what that would be yet, uh, and whether they have the, the wherewithal to really pull that off, even if they knew. So, yeah, we'll face these things. I think there are a lot of bad people in the world. So 
people will come up with these crazy schemes, but but we'll you know there are a lot of gates and checks to make sure it doesn't become something that the masses have to worry about. I'm more worried about good people with good intentions that go awry than bad people personally, because everyone that's trying to do something like this justifies it to themselves, arguably for good reasons. Oh, I think everyone. I don't think who you, it doesn't matter who you are. Yeah, you always believe in what you're doing, and and you always believe you are right and morally right. Now, people wonder how you know, say terrorists do what they do. Well, they, they do it because they, they believe they're fundamentally correct. So they believe they're righteous and they're, they have the right path. So there's no doubt you're right about that. That happens to, in every single situation. People will have their version of what they, their beliefs and why they're on the right side of, the, of, the, of history. I want to take a quick time out to tell you about today's show sponsor, Design Crowd. They're the company that we used to get our podcast cover art for the disruptors and friend Jeff M before we had to change the brand name. I've used them a bunch before in the past as well. How it works, you put up a project, be that a logo design, a brand cover art, podcast cover art, you name it, and designers around the world compete. You don't pay unless you're happy. And you know what? The best part, you get incredible results. Just look at the cover art we have. Look at that sexy thing. It looks like it's from the BBC or something, right? At least that was the thoughts I had when I had it. I hope you guys do as well. If you guys are interested in checking them out, supporting us by supporting them, go to disruptors.fm slash designcrowd. That's D-E-S-I-G-N-C-R-O-W-D. Now let's get on with the program. Do you believe or do you ascribe to the human being just a machine type feel? Or are you someone that has some type of belief in a consciousness? Humans are inherently different than what an AI would be. Oh, definitely the latter. I think if we are in the end machines, then then AI will do it better than we can ever do it uh, in this century, for sure. So I think we'll discover what it is to be human, really. AI is going to help us do that because it will take away a lot of the layers that we put on, the, you know, we have now that, that we believe are human, but that are machine-like. And it will leave us with what we, you know, what it actually means to be human versus the best AI, you know, capability in the, in the world. So um, I'm definitely the latter, the camp of the latter. I wonder if being human could just be to be imperfect. Art is something that you create for no efficient reason it's just something that's enjoyed because it's not needed i wonder if being human is something similar i agree i mean i think again the emotional component the the spirit if you will the the emotional component of being a human is is what's clearly going to set us apart in a major in a major way ai has no reason to feel and and even even if they learn even if it learns how to interpret feelings i'm not saying ai ai can be quite good at pattern recognition it will be it will be able to to really see how people feel and, and, and detect when someone's angry versus happy versus excited versus uh, disgusted. I, not so much that, but I think that the actual act of feeling something and living your life based on a combination of cognition and emotions that, go, that come together, that is, that is what the human in part is about. And I don't see why AI would ever go in that direction and try to replicate that. I would agree, but I also don't see why it wouldn't. We'll have to I, don't, see. I don't. I don't think it has any. I don't. Well, it's up to us. We make it, so it's a matter of who you know. Someone wants to. I, I think trying to mimic having AI mimic a human being is a waste of time. People will try it, but I don't think it's going to really accomplish anything. AI will do its own, have its own track, and it's not about copying a human. I think that's probably a better way to go, especially with uh with the uncanny valley being what it is. What's it like? Is it frustrating being a a physical product type entrepreneur in a world where SaaS is so much easier and cheaper? Because can that be troubling sometimes for raising money? Sure. Yeah, no, we, we had a, 
tremendous challenge always about, you know, when you have a physical product, it's much more difficult. But, uh, you know, as I think entrepreneurs uh, learn is you really need to adapt. And this is how we went from a really, you know, high-end wearable device that's super high-tech to a patch that is still has a lot of technology in it, but is, you know, something in be- that's much more like software than it is hardware in the sense that let's take a patch, not just our patch, but in general, you can take any patch, which is a sensor, et cetera. Patches are in between hardware and software because you can change them on a time scale of, let's say, six to eight weeks. You can make changes to a patch in terms of form factor and materials and design, all types of things. And in our case, we could change our programs that we use for stimulation, et cetera. But you know, software, you can change the order of weeks, depending on what it is. And hardware, uh, like a wearable, that takes more like nine to 15 week, uh, months to do. So nine to 15 months to really change a wearable, you've got to redesign it and relaunch a product. So the, the reason I say this, all of this is because it is, uh, it is true that you want to have more flexibility, which is why we gravitated. That, that's one of the reasons we gravitated to a patch versus a wearable. But there are a lot of important lessons in, in why software businesses are much easier to, to fund. And, and I think hardware, Groups have to take those lessons and take them deadly serious. Like, you know, really incorporate them into, into how they run their company and why choices are made. Not to say that you should exit hardware, but it, when you do hardware, you have to really be aware of all of this ahead of time. And I don't mean the fundraising. I mean, be aware of the trade-offs between hardware and software and why you want to choose a certain direction. And I think most teams don't do that. Most teams fall, you know, you have hardware engineers that fall in love with hardware and the idea of launching a particular type of product. And they, they do not stop to really look at some of the fundamental issues. If they did, they would change how they designed the product. And they would still be a physical product, but it would, they would take a different approach. Yeah, like Fitbit's a cool company, but it's not a great company because they don't actually make that much money. They can sell you one, maybe two or three once they break. Yeah, it's a tough business. It's a really tough business. And they've done a great job to build their company and, and not to be relevant in the future and, and provide things that we really get excited about. Yeah, you know, that's a that's a tall order. So it's not it's 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 easy from the easier I would say from the you know from the stands to uh, cheer or critique. It's uh, I've been through it. You know, I, I we came up with this patch, which I know is the right technology and approach. But I was you know leading a group of fifty people launching a wearable, first of its kind, and for for me to stop that and never launch it and retool the company and fire people and and sort of pivot into a patch would have been the right thing if it were... Now, we didn't know that at the time. But let's say it was a possibility. It would have been the right decision, but almost impossible to do when you have built something from scratch. You've hired everybody. Your investors are behind you. Everybody's excited about the amazing wearable you're going to launch. It's almost impossible to stop something once it's off and going because if it's your mission and everyone's behind that mission. And I've seen it so many times, not only with myself, but you know with in other companies, it's really blinders once you get going. Because if you don't, nobody believes in what you're doing except you and your team. And if you start doubting what you're doing, it starts to change in a fundamental way. So then what's left, right? What's left? That's how you, that's how it feels when you're in this gigantic uh, race trying to come up with something brand new that's pioneering. So one of the biggest lessons though for all entrepreneurs and, and at least in the area I'm in is really it is as a CEO and the leadership team really needs to, you know, look at hard 
at these very basic models of software versus disposables versus hardware, and not just and really understand hard the hard trade-offs between them, and really force yourself to innovate to find the solution that you know will not require you to swim upstream across three or four major facets of a go-to-market. You know that that is all seems obvious. Like when I, I'm talking, it's like, oh, this is super obvious. Why you know why doesn't everyone just say do this? Do you even need to say it? <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you that you do need to say it because again. It's really important to the way you, what I'm trying to say is it's really important once you get started down a certain path to always reevaluate and to not be afraid to completely change that path if you realize that there are some basic issues. And, and so I don't know how to say it in more specific ways because I'm so vague the way I'm talking. I feel like I'm just rambling, but uh, maybe if we go into specific stories, it'd, it'd be it's a way to explain some of this. Other than, otherwise, it just seems too generic. Basically, basically, you can hamstring your company by building the wrong business model. But what do you do when the wrong business model is the right thing to do? For instance, if you look today at a lot of the companies getting funding, oh, I mean, I, I do some angel investing. How many of them are another photo sharing app? Do we really need another photo sharing app? How do, how do we handle the fact that the alignment isn't quite there structurally to make some of the things that the world needs in a hugely profitable way. Yeah, that is that is a major issue. The world does need a number of, you know, it, it needs innovation in third world countries, it needs innovation for the environment, it needs innovation uh, in certain aspects of healthcare and neglected diseases and in areas where, where venture funding is not going to appear. And what that means is that it's unlikely that one company will be able to find a particular solution all the way through that was invented translate it and commercialize it. What, what will happen over time is people will find pieces of the puzzles for every particular problem. And it will take a lot longer, uh, but those technologies, those pieces will float in the ether and get picked up by other people who will add more to it. And over time, more to it will, will be added. Eventually, there will be some nucleation between someone in the future and what's been done to complete something. And then that will go forward because it's it's got, you know, it's it's very close to the goal line in terms of being something practical. So it gets, it will get some funding from somebody and then it goes forward. So the process is much less, it's much more random. It takes a lot more time. It's like diffusion versus, you know, actually having a current behind you, taking you somewhere. So it hurts all of us in the meantime, because we, we would like to have that, that solution, but we don't have it, but that's the way it will go. And in some areas you can't afford that time. So in environmental solutions, you can't afford to let it maybe be random over time and, and have it evolve because our earth is, you know, suffering. So it will take gigantic efforts to, to innovate in that area at some point that are organized and funded. But in a lot of other areas, it's okay. It's okay that it takes longer. It's just, there's no other way at the moment. It's the best way. What was it like taking a company public? Oh, exciting. It was, uh, it was you know, it's, it's, a, it's a strange, but really exciting process. Like process. You basically, Go see about 80 people in two weeks and you get 20, 30 minutes with each one. You know, you pitch your company, answer questions and move on. You get to do it at dinners, you get to do it at lunches, you get to do it in larger group settings. And, um, you know, uh, it's a process where you have, to, you have to create a lot of demand quickly and then things are great. And if you, but if you don't, uh, then, then what happens is you've, you've now spent a million dollars, 90 days, told the whole world that you're doing it. And then the day comes when you price 
And so that's why you see people price below the range, below expectations, because they don't have a choice. So the investors at that point, the bankers are trying to help you. But really, at that point, the investors have the ability to get you know, to ask for what they want. And, and you really have no choice other than to back off and not do a public offering, which is at that point a little bit insane to do. So that's why you see companies, you know, price below market. Luckily, we, in our, in our case, in our company, that, that didn't happen. It was my first company, Civics. We, we didn't have that problem, but uh, you see it all the time, all the time. And if you're oversubscribed, and you have a lot of demand, then things are great and you price, you know, very strongly. What do you think about all the unicorns that held off going public for so long and a lot of them are now going public this year? What do you think about that staying private longer? Uh, well, you know, it's it's really a, about the founding team and, and, and really communicating clearly with employees. There's definitely a trade-off. I'd say most of those unicorns would have preferred, I would think, to, to have gone public when they were in a high growth rate. Uh, all of those companies went from, let's call it tens of millions of dollars to uh, hundreds of millions or billions, and and in that trajectory, that would have been the time to go public. And it's simple; it just it makes life a lot easier for the company to go public in that kind of situation. But when things are really going well and you're growing quickly, you feel like it's never going to end, and and there's no need to be to go through the pain and and all the all the the downsides of being a public company. And so I think I understand why people don't want to do it early and why they want to wait. However, if you wait until your growth has slowed down, you just made your life a lot more complicated. And eventually, employees need liquidity and investors need liquidity. So it becomes a, a, an important, if you're private, it becomes a major part of what a CEO has to do is to, to get them that liquidity. I don't mean by IPO, it can be by bringing new investors in and having a secondary market basically for your shares created. Uh, so people can have some liquidity, but that takes a lot of effort also. And so I would say, again, I think most companies, I've met CEOs who've told me this for all types of businesses, they, they really miss the window when, during their highest growth period, and they, and they shouldn't have done that. Well, no one retires on top when it comes to the NBA, the NFL, anything. It's almost, almost all of them need to be hit around a couple of times first. But, uh, you know, these are significant companies that, that deserve to go public, and it's great to see them, uh, you know, do that. And you're incredibly excited because there's going to be like a thousand new millionaires in the Bay Area thanks to thanks to this year. So there's funding in case you uh, in case you need it. Yeah, that uh, that actually causes more problems than, than good <laughs> around here. But but actually, I'm, I'm I'm excited because I'm just excited by you know for for the economy for the for the area for the fields are in. We need more and more innovation, obviously, uh, more and more success. It, for every success that there's out there, there'll be ten thousand attempts. That are funded, and that's really the engine of innovation is the, the fact that all these attempts are being funded and ventures. And that, I'm a big believer in that. So I, I love to see success because I know it brings more capital, and a lot more tinkering, a lot more more you know shots on goal for for technology. If you had to get out of your industry today, neuroscience, and you also had to avoid AI, what field would you go into and start a company, or what company would you join? Oh, well, I would I would. Uh, I guess if we're going to get practical, I would say I would I would probably try to to move into some of the medical healthcare areas where technology and services together are really innovating. There's some places where some radically new things can be done with services where you're you're really taking by taking a service a procedure out of a practice and making it a service in some way. 
you basically centralize it, make it much more cost-effective, much more patient-friendly, and actually help the physicians because they, they're bogged down with so many different things they're doing that they love to get help in doing certain procedures, doing certain things you know, in a better way. So I think there's a lot to be done in healthcare to improve just the quality of the health and the cost to bring it down. That'd be a great area to go into. Of course, the, the technologist in me would love to get into some of the biology that you mentioned, the genetic and these things, but that's, a, that's more for, that's because you want to you go to that frontier would be, would be pretty, pretty amazing to do with the right team and the right applications only, you know, but, but it's a long haul. I think in particular, I think extending life is a big topic. It is pretty fascinating that some of the pathways people have found out extend life, that with a single molecule, you can do things that no one ever imagined would be possible uh, in animals. And so there's always this prospect of, can we, can we figure that out for a person? So that's an entirely new frontier that's really exciting and uh, fraught, fraught with the ethical dilemmas we talked about earlier, but uh, you know, fascinating. Yeah, fascinating nonetheless. I have one last question for you, Izzy, and that's if you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, what would it be and why before you tell them where to find you? Yeah, a call to action. I mean, I, I, would, I, I have to say, I mean, out of context, it's so hard, but I think for entrepreneurs, I do believe that whatever the core, you know, the core invention, the core ability, the core capability that you have uh, in yourself and your team, your venture, I think it's really important to, to persevere and realize that it is really by getting through the desert uh, in many of these ventures. And that in order to do that and come out the other side, you have to be willing to reevaluate everything uh, except your core, you know, the core proposition you're, you're delivering. But how you deliver it and when and where and with whom are all things that need to be checked all the time and hard decisions have to be made, uh, but you shouldn't be afraid to make them. So my main message is persevere at all costs, which is not a new message. I think we've all heard that. But having, having done that in companies, I can tell you it's not common for people to persevere. Yeah, you took one on the chin. What, uh, what was it like going through that and how did you manage? Well, we, even in companies that succeed, my, my first company succeeded, we took it on the chin on the way to success. Uh, I think whether you succeed or fail, you are met with severe challenges along the way. And, and in, in, my, in this company, in Think, we did. We, we basically uh, failed, to, failed with our first you know, uh, rodeo. And then for our second rodeo, we had to, had to survive to get to a second rodeo to really almost now invent a third rodeo. Uh, it is, again, out of context, there's no general rule. All I can say is... Be a cockroach believe, and survive. I do believe that it, it forges, you know, it, it reveals character and it, and it forces, and you really see who the gladiators are who survive in these, in these battles uh, in entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is not for everybody. I, I know that now. I know why. Because, you know, you have moments when it's just heartbreaking. You know, I had to let go of 40 people out of 50 in one day. These are all people who, who are amazing, who did everything I've ever asked them to do. And, you know, you get to a point where something's not working and you realize that there is no saving the company unless you radically shrink. And, and when you're studying a, a business, I didn't go to business school, but, you know, if you're doing a business case, business study, yeah, a business school study, it's easy to analyze these things when you're really removed, but... Uh, you know, the reason people are not entrepreneurs is because you have to be willing to lay it all on the line when no one believes it. Build it all up, 
tear it all down, be humbled by it, rebuild it in a different way. Those kind of things really, really, uh, you know, test you. And so, and not just you, it's not, when I say me, I mean, I would never have gone to where I am without the teams that we work with right together. So it's not just having you stick it out, but you have to get other people to stick it out with you. So it's a, it's a really, I think, great thing. People should persevere. And the only advice I have is persevere, but do not repeat. <laughs> persevere in a very different way and find a way to succeed, but a radically different way than you did before. Uh, and, know, and know when you have to take it out back and shoot it because the, the, it's just not going to be able to float the boat, so to speak. Izzy, this has, been a, this has been a good one. I'm sure it's been informative and fun for people. If people want to find out more about you and how you're changing the world, where can they do it? Our company, Think, is uh, spelled T-H-Y-N-C. So we have a website. And uh, again, I mentioned that we're, we're launching this really cool product soon. And if people want to learn about it, they can go to, to uh, useyourhead.com. And that's basically a caffeine boost without the caffeine hooked to your head. Yeah, clean energy, no crash. Yeah, do it, do it electrically. Uh, sounds, uh, it certainly is the future. So people should try with fun. It certainly is. You just better get us there. That's, uh, that's our challenge for you, right? Totally. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Izzy. And thanks for tuning in, guys. Thank you. Yeah, cheers. Check out Izzy's stuff. And if you got something to add, then reach out to him or reach out to us. Until next time, have a good one. Cheers. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.